you know, you'll watch people doing bicep curls in the gym and they fling the weight around thinking they're fantastic, but they're actually not doing the work. And it would be exactly the same with contracting the calf. If somebody's got an incompetent medial column and they're trying to do calf raises, they're probably not really doing the job properly. Posterior tibial dysfunction, something Fred sees when it's disastrous and it's gone really bad and that's not little surgery to fix that. You know, post tib is not firing properly, the calf can't fire properly. It's literally impossibility. Physically, you know, it cannot happen. So sometimes we have to pull people out of exercise that, they, that they're happy doing and say, let's send you into a physio or a biokineticist and teach you how to do the exercise properly. Okay, good morning and welcome to the Vascular Vein Podcast. I'm Laura Redman. I'm hosting it today from South Africa. And our topic today is the, the vein heart, the calf pump. And we have quite a wide um, panel on, and I asked everyone to come for different reasons because I think it's quite an important topic. And we've seen a problem with the use of the calf pump from is foot issues or vein issues or anything more and more and getting a better understanding of it. So I'm just going to introduce everyone on um, the panel. We've got Sergio Genesini. He's a vascular surgeon all the way from Italy, and he's done extensive research and international work on everything venous. He's sort of one of the leading venous experts. Um, and a lot of your research, Sergio, has been on venous physiology. So that's why I was very pleased to have you on board for this. And Fred Lowe is an orthopedic surgeon at Christian Barnard with me here. Um, and we've also been interacting more about patients when they've got ulcers that don't heal from lack of the calf pump. Sean Pinkers, who's a podiatrist, and we've worked together for a long time, and he knows um, it's a big topic we've always discussed <laughs> over and over. And then Nicole Redman, who's actually my sister, and she's a physiotherapist, and we've been we've um, had numerous discussions on this because it's also um, an interest to me. So I've asked her about neuromuscular stimulation and everything. Okay, so I think what we can do, please all just interrupt each other and chat with each other and, you know, make comments and be interactive, um, not interrupt, just interactive. But I'm going to ask Sergio to start just, I think, for the general audience and giving us a small overview of the importance of the calf pump in terms of edema and venous return. And we almost, you know, measure it like cardiac function now. Um, and, yeah, if you can just kick off. Sure. And I think, uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. It's lovely to be together. Let's hope soon in person. And it's a very easy task, actually, the one you have uh, given me, Laura, because it's like uh, talking about the importance of the heart. Because indeed, uh, the calf pump uh, is uh, usually called by experts as the peripheral heart. And it really goes uh, with uh, the human nature evolution, I would say, for which uh, we evolved from quadrupeds uh, to bipeds. So we usually don't see varicose veins on our arms, but uh, in our legs. And the way we can counteract this uh, Darwinian price we have been paying for our evolution is thanks to the calf that is indeed pumping uh, uh, the venous blood back against the gravity force. And this really goes uh, with the indications we give every single day to our patients of uh, keeping uh, themselves uh, uh, in movement, uh, particularly after a sedentary time like the one of uh, COVID, but always uh, looking for evidence-based uh, data, 
always uh, looking for a multidisciplinary approach. So I really congratulate the initiative for bringing together experts from the different fields, including orthopedics, podiatry, because, you know, also the weight bearing has to do with uh, the function of uh, this uh, pump. There is a nice uh, paper by Hull that is uh, showing how you can increase by four times the risk of developing venous insufficiency if uh, you don't put down the weight in the right way. So I think we are touching a very important heart topic today. Thanks. Thanks, Sergio. Yeah, and I think what I wanted to also really get from Fred and Sean and Nicole is um, how we can improve the calf function in people who, you know, aren't using it. Because um, we, from a vascular perspective, especially venous, we'll see a lot of patients with severe edema or non-healing wound. And um, even with compression, it's seeming the most affected has is really the ejection fraction of the calf pump. So, Fred, do you want to um, start with anything you can surgically do? And usually it's from patients with, you know, we would say flat feet or foot issues where they're not using the spagastroc or soleus muscle. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you, Laura. I mean, we, we, we find this, um, um, being a foot and ankle subspecialist, this is one of our biggest, biggest problems uh, or, or challenges that we faced with um, on a day-to-day -day basis, specifically um, related to post-op swelling, um, calf insufficiency, um, wound swelling, wound leakage, bleeding, um, and then and then the the elephant in the room is, is infection. Um, um, from my point of view, um, um, it's the thing that frightens me the most. If we're if we're going into a foot uh, or or a very tight gastroc or an insufficient calf, which is leading to venous pooling or certain troubles like that. I personally like to have the vascular or the venous surgeon to have a look and see if they can optimize patients in a more elective fashion, but, but from a surgical fashion, we've got to try to keep that down as much as possible. We use several tricks and, um, tricks and, and um, modifications of what we've done, which can start from wound closure, where we're doing several layers of wound closure, um, meticulous, meticulous uh, coagulation and looking at trying to not get too much bleeding into our wounds first and foremost, but if we're not getting the, the, the fluid or the, uh, the, the swelling to, to leave, we're going to have a problem long-term, specifically in the first week to two weeks. Elevating the feet helps greatly. I try to get patients to move their, move their toes. Intrinsic exercises, which are started day, day one, post-operatively, to, to help even starting with the foot to move it. And if you can potentially um, move your calf, if you haven't touched that calf too much with surgery, then start moving your calf. And, um, um, and contracting it earlier to us makes a great, makes a great difference. Um, um, earlier mobilization and getting up sometimes is a bit tricky if you've had your one leg operated on, but certainly getting up um, earlier, moving quicker and all the rest um, um, helps. Other problems, um, if there is a chance that we can optimize our hosts, I'd, I'd, I'd find it from a foot and ankle point of view, it makes a huge difference. We've, if we've got a patient with very, who's very obese, who's got lots of intra-abdominal pressure or anything like that, which is causing our problems, um, I think finding the specific cause for what our venous insufficiency is before and trying to sort that out um, makes, makes, makes a great difference. But from an intraoperative point of a post-operative point of view, getting them to move their foot, to move their calf and everything as quick as possible makes a huge difference, albeit sometimes on a static fashion where you're not moving the foot, not moving the leg itself, you're actually just moving the calf by contracting it inside a cast or a boot, just makes a huge difference. And um, Fred, but on that note, if, if a patient's actually not using their calf pump, 
from a foot or ankle issue. So they can't, you know, fire it off and eject that amount of blood into the venous system. Is there any surgical procedures you do or could do that would improve that foot structure to enhance the use of the gastrocosoleus? That's a very good, it's a very good question. If I've, if, if I've got a fixed gastrocnemius contracture or fixed gastrocnemius contracture, you can consider uh, um, releasing it, but releasing would certainly weaken, weaken the exact pull off of it. So that's a bit tricky, but um, I'm moving on other muscles on the, on the inside. If I've got a flat foot or something and someone's not moving their calf as much, then potentially addressing the flat foot issue, which allows them to address their step off, which usually allows them to address their calf issue as well. Um, plus minus doing some lengthening, lengthening of tendons um, um, could certainly help, help, uh, help strengthen or hopefully help strengthen that. The irony is, is that as soon as you lengthen that tight Achilles tendon, you, you weaken it. Um, but that doesn't weaken the calf pump mechanism, that just weakens the, the line of pull. So you lengthen the tendon a little bit, which, which weakens the line of pull of the tendon, but not so much the calf pump. The calf pump itself is still working. Um, um, compressing those venules and getting them and, and, and getting the blood up the leg. And I think um, actually, Sergio, in your country, I visited the Deep Bellevue unit in Modena, and they give a lot of um, teaching on venous edema. But anyone who's got is not using their calf pump adequately, they're seen for physio. So, Nikki, from a physio perspective, what, if a patient comes to you with that, because I often send to physio here, um, not to you because you're on the other side of the country. Um, what would you advise them to do to try and enhance that calf pump? Well, if I can actually just touch on the, the previous discussion, um, I think preoperative physio we found to be incredibly beneficial where we've actually already trained the patient in what type of exercises they're going to need to be doing after they've had the op because to try and get them to move something directly post-op they're quite nervous. So a couple of days preoperatively to just explain to them the calf pump, the foot pumps that they will be doing, how to contract your gastroc or your soleus without movement. Um, it really is beneficial post-operatively, we found. Then, of course, a lot of it is manual therapy. We can actively um, get the patient to move the foot, actively contract the gastrocs, or we can passively do it also. Um, just with gentle stretching and dorsi plantar flexion, again, depending on the mobility or the range of movement of the ankle. If we really are battling, um, electrotherapy stimulation does help too, where we can place external electrodes over the muscle itself and cause electric current to actually get a muscle contraction. Of course, this has to be in a patient um, that doesn't have any motor or lower motor neuron injuries because <laughs> the, the stimulation required will be too high then you'll have a few burn wounds. Um, but yeah, patients seem to me as a lot of gait retraining, uh, looking at, you know, the, the heel strike, the toe off, um, general strengthening, using elastic bands, using compression stockings, um, a lot of treadmill walking where we can increase and decrease the incline um, as, as required in order to try and increase the, the strength and, and the use of the muscle correctly. Okay, thanks. And um, Sean, I think we've had so many of these from our Limp for Life group. And I think also people, like I see more and more patients with edema, but they don't always get sent to um, podiatry or physio or anyone just for edema. But I know that I've sent to you here for many. So what do you try and optimize in them all? Yeah, I think 
the big thing we've been talking about gait and function and the use of the calf muscle pump is you want efficient movement in the sagittal plane. And so many things can influence movement in the sagittal plane. So where Fred was talking about tight gastroxoleus complex, restricting ankle dorsiflexion. You get tight FHL, FDL muscles restricting movement there. Uh, there's a lot of work that was done early on by Howard Dannenberg in designing orthotics that actually unlock the, fu the function of the hallux. It's called functional hallux limitus, where just in function, the hallux gets blocked. And it's not a true hallux rigidus, which is another complex all on its own, but you want to get the foot functioning efficiently over the two pivots, which is the ankle and the, and, and the, uh, metatar the metatarsal joints. And if you don't get that functioning, you're going to find the patient will slowly and surely begin to shorten their stride length and walk without contraction of the calf muscle. So when I start looking at people, it's why is it happening? Why, is, why are they not functioning that way? Why are they not contracting their calf when they walk? And in the majority of cases, it's the fact that they are, have got some blockage in the sagittal plane movement. And we need to try and understand what's causing it and how can we control it with an orthotic and or footwear. And there's lots of new running shoes in the market with fantastic rocker bottom soles. The best thing, best thing ever in controlling sagittal plane function. You just put somebody into one of these shoes and automatically they're better. So they can start extending their stride length, which is then going to what Nikki's saying, we're talking about gait re-education. So it becomes a sum of all parts and a sum of all disciplines where you want everybody to bring their game to work on the patient's ability to walk with a slightly longer stride length. And as they're swinging the advancing limb forward, they're going to contract the calf of the, the, the ground-based limb. Just recently, I've read some work done by another podiatrist in South Africa, Ned Thompson, who did a PhD on the foot pump. So we actually need to start going back a little bit and look at the foot pump, which precedes the calf pump. And it's this whole synchronization of cardiac function, blood returning to the heart, as well as gait. In a, like it's a multi-system thing. And it's, it's, you know, the more I've looked at it, the more complex it's got. But the simpler it is at the same time. If you just identify where the problem is, you know what to do to go forward to correct it and to ease up the patient's problems. Uh, thanks. I think you're right. Yeah, the foot pump does have a role. It's less of a muscular role, but it's definitely part of the whole system. I think there are two points I want to pick up. Fred, you mentioned about obese patients, and that's a significant issue with patients with peripheral edema. But I think those two things, the obesity and um, poor use of calf pump, which is often gait or foot issues, um, are big problems for managing patients with edema. And we will use compression stockings, which patients hate. But again, Sergio, I think you could comment here, you know, we, we're gaining more understanding of compression, but it seemingly has its most effect in the deep compartment and actually around gastroc to increase ejection flow. Yeah, sure, Laura, and congratulations for what has been brought up so far, because some important topics uh, have raised already, let's say, like foot pump, up to my knowledge, according to the literature, is about 20% of the venous return that we have. Uh, the 60% more or less is coming 
from the calf and another 20%, let's say so, from the thigh. This is really influencing the way we are suggesting our patients to behave. And of course, the opportunity of activating the foot pump, for example, by walking, and it's great to have orthopedics and physiotherapy experts today with us, could influence the result, meaning that it could be helpful for the venous return because you are squeezing, of course, the foot pump, but at the same time, it could be a problem from the joints perspective. And that's why we usually manage these patients with a lot of standardized exercises in the aquatic environment. That is uh, the best uh, form of compression we can get because uh, every single centimeter of water into the pool is a 0.7 millimeter mercury, which means that when we are standing up simply into the pool, at the bottom, if we are like 120 centimeter, we have 80 and more millimeter mercury. The stockings we are usually talking about are in between 20, 40, let's say so. So we really focus on a combination of physical exercises into the aquatic environment, combined, of course, with compression when they are outside the aquatic environment. And it's really interesting what was mentioned before about the ankle range of motion that we found to be directly correlated to the aquatic exercises we were proposing. Now, the important thing, and I like to ask the other guests of today, is to make sure we protect our patients from not evidence-based data, not certified products. For example, if we are talking about, it was mentioned before, uh, the different shoes we can find in the shop proposing a benefit, I think uh, we should make sure that uh, the claims of these commercials are in line with what these products are really doing, meaning that uh, specific products are certified and others are not. So it's always fundamental to go to the specialist, I would say, to ask for recommendation rather than just following uh, the commercial. The same thing for the compression stockings, because, for example, in Italy, we have many that are not certified and that are also uncomfortable because they're not properly prescribed. While it's properly prescribed, we know that the compliance, so the acceptance of the patients is high. The same for the aquatic environment, where you have centers that are proposing whatever kind of exercise without proper scientific validation, while we should rely on evidence-based data. So I think it would be interesting to know from the other experts, at least for me, if also your ward, in terms of specialty, is affected by misinformation and not certified products and not certified claims, because that is exactly what we have been working on heavily in the last two years in, in a project that we will present at the Expo in, in Dubai next February. Are, are you affected also in your field uh, from this, let's say, fake news? Very much, very much so. You know, the, the inner solar and orthotic industry worldwide is worth billions, billions and billions. And if you just Google orthotics, you'll find anybody and their pet dog is designing and selling orthotics. And orthotics, you know, even after we've been making them for so many years, we still quite don't understand fully how they work. So people will supply all kinds of OTC orthotics. You can go to, you know, supermarkets and pharmacies and buy things for, 50 rand and then people say but i've had orthotics that didn't work so where did you get them so i bought them you know, online from someone and that definitely affects it so orthotics are specifically designed and are designed per foot not even per pair you know, each foot can have its completely different design uh, so there's definitely a, an influence in, in the media the, the the shoes i was talking about are, are the athletic shoes of the rocker bottom soles which have actually changed the record book that's a whole nother discussion 
but they do have been, and there's a lot of literature that's been done on it, on showing how it improves stride length. So I was speaking about stride length being involved in the ability of the calf muscle to contract. So the, the shoes I'm talking about, there's been a lot of, lit, lot of literature on that showing that it actually does exactly that. It increases and improves plantar flexion and improves stride length, which is why the shoes have been breaking all sorts of records. So that's a whole different thing. But there's definitely a lot of fake product, poor product, poorly designed product, poorly made product out there. And then by the time the patient comes through to see you and you say, you need orthotics, they say, no, thanks. I've already had five pairs that didn't work. So it is a, is a challenge. I think um, it's it's interesting. I was uh, I I was in, I was attending a talk about a year ago by one of the um, the head foot and ankle surgeon for the NFL, and um, he reviewed all um, just to give an idea of it. He reviewed all of the major brands um, football football cleats that that were worn in the NHL, in the NHL. A lot of them very well known brands, which 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 were charging. Um, um, very large dollar amounts for their shoes, and and the interesting part is, is less than sixty percent actually passed muster for being for being um, for, for the three or four things which they required, despite d- despite incredible advertising budgets, incredible uh, product placement by athletes. Um, um, very few people had actually done academic studies and and looked at looked at which shoes are being produced by major industry. To see what's happened, and he'd found that over sixty percent hadn't hadn't passed the master. You know, where where simple simple things as pro- providing basic support to the foot and ankle uh, wasn't there. You know, they looked great, uh, but they wouldn't work. And I, I, I think that's that, that that's our fight is um, is using evidence based medicine to get people to use the correct things um, um, going going forward because. If we don't, we're going to lose the hearts and minds on people actually using proper devices and proper accessories without uh, with, without them even knowing it. You know, this, this is so interesting. Sorry to jump in, but you just said a number that is 60%. And we actually are running this campaign following a paper from Poland that reported 40% indeed. So 60 and 40, same number, because you said like 60% uh, were passing the test. Like 40% of the medical websites were not passing the test for misinformation. And they were actually shared in average 450,000 times. So what Laura is putting on today as a show, I think is very important because uh, it's a showcase of evidence-based needs uh, rather than just uh, whatever opinion out there in the market. What are you seeing it in a lot of Sergio in terms of products? So much that we decided to run a full campaign globally and bring that to the expo. So we see them a lot in terms of compression, uh, one major issue in Italy is, for example, they all know the dinners. I don't know if you use them in South Africa, but the dinners is a unit of measure of how much uh, the product weights, basically, not how, not how much pressure you have. And all uh, the people are looking for these uh, stockings that are not really expressing how many millimeter mercury they are creating. Or they are j- just going to the pool, doing strange exercises, maybe also... Uh, having very cold and very hot experiences, while in reality, all you need is the physics, for example, in uh, the aquatic environment uh, of, of course, the proper temperature, but of the pressure that is coming also from the density of the water for which thermal environments have a particular interest uh, 
for the patients also because of the solutes they have inside that could have an anti-inflammatory effect. No, thanks. I think yeah. the compression industry is huge, yeah, and it's sort of exponentially... But Laura, in reality, in reality, I don't know how much in South Africa, but here we have venous active drugs and we have also topicals that are used a lot. And there are like a lot of products that are not validated uh, and that they think they might help and they get on these films, but they are surely not the ones in the literature we have. Mm, mm. That's true. And you, yeah, you're doing a great thing by actually exposing that, the fake news. So you're just running a whole campaign. Um, I think as well, Fred, what you see with the sports, I think a lot of it must be in sports, probably sports and aesthetics as well. And there's compression being used more and more in sports. I don't know if um, your patients ask you a lot about that. You probably see a lot of athletes. I talk to my patients a lot about that and always ask what sport or what physical activities they are doing. And again, I'm really happy to have today colleagues from other specialties. We created a group called Fleb Ortho that is bringing together orthopedics and uh, phlebology because we are used to say sport is uh, like uh, the best drug ever. It uh, is acting on all the different systems of the body, if you think about that when you're talking about movement. But like a drug, it can be harmful or beneficial based on how you administer that. So if you think about the word agonist, inside you have agony as the word. So sport practice in a not appropriate way becomes an agony. And that's why we have experts like the one of today, making sure that we don't injure ourselves when we are doing um, sport practice. So yes, we do use a lot of sport as a therapy and as a prevention, but cautious that it can be also harmful. Uh, interesting that Fred was talking about the, the cleats you know, or, or boots in, in, in NFL football, because if you, if you look at the construction of that kind of shoe, it hasn't changed dramatically for a long time. So they're pretty much the same things. They've always been. You know, like I say, they've changed the uppers and they've done all sorts of things. But if you look at a lot of the boots now, they're essentially a, a sock with a plate with studs on it. That's really all they are. They, there's like absolutely no support in the shoe. Uh, there's a, an American, uh, the Australian podiatrist by the name of Simon Bartold, who's done a lot of work redesigning sports-specific shoes. Uh, and he started with, with Australian rules football, and he's done hockey, he's done netball. So they're starting to look at it. But the majority of the research budget that goes into athletic footwear goes into running shoes. You know, you just need to see the, the Nike research lab in, in, in Oregon, which has got a, like a 200-meter force plate track with billions. So the majority of the money goes there. And the other sports just get the same things that they've always had, just tarted up with different colors. So uh, I would agree with that comment that 60% of the shoes wouldn't pass muster. They may look fantastic, but they're not fantastic. So it's just, you know, as long as the shoe looks good and it sticks to the turf and they don't slip, that's a good shoe. There's not more to it than that. Okay, I think you, you're right. And it's, yeah, a lot of it is in sports, though, sports and aesthetics. Um, I think just one other aspect of the calf pump, going back to our topic, I wanted to bring up, because you're talking about perioperative patients and Fred, you were saying about optimizing them um, beforehand, is I make a lot of use of the lymphedema therapists as well. Because once, you know, they've got edema in that leg, if it's from venous or any origin, um, there's some secondary lymphedema. So they are very good pre and post-op um, therapy to use. I don't know if you make use of them at all. 
I, I, I certainly do. I mean, I usually refer most of my patients to you, actually, Laura. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that um, and, and, and getting my, my worry or my gist is, is certainly if, if there's any pre-op swelling or, um, or, or peripheral venous edema or anything that I can sort out before, before I operate or if I plan my operation, um, um, it, 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 it has a huge post-operative um, influence and effect on my surgery, specifically on wound healing, on rehabilitation, um, on return, um, even with bony work, which takes four to six weeks to heal. Um, and once the swelling comes down, most of the pain seems to settle as well. Um, my first two weeks are probably the most important from, from a swelling point of view, because I've, with surgery, initiated a swelling process, and then I've got the background of venous venous swelling and, and, and edema around there. So if I can in any manner optimize someone uh, to pre-op and post-operatively get on top of that, um, I'm out of the worst neck of the woods at around two weeks when it comes to infection, wound breakdown, um, and complications like that, which to me are, are, are one of the big markers of, of where things can go wrong in surgery. So the... Um, the, the lymphedema and venous treatment uh, specialists to me are, are paramount. Mm. And I think it sort of brings me to another contentious point. And um, we've had these discussions. Is, well, Nikki, you had an interesting point of treating them pre-op as well, because um, we would normally give compression and then you know, manage most of it post-operatively. Um, so that's the idea. You're going to treat the patient pre-op. They could learn physio. They could get orthotics. They can be go for manual lymph drainage but that whole thing in our environment then becomes an issue for the patient with time and cost so it's very much an ideal world um again so finding that balance is hard any other comments about the vein heart or pumping the point that was made earlier about excess people going to exercise and exercising poorly you know they and, and that's something that i see a lot in my primary practice is sports medicine is that people will go and join a gym or join a boot camp or do something for exercise and they will exercise poorly. And when you're wanting to rehabilitate somebody, you do need specific guidance of people who really know what they're doing and how to instruct them on the actual correct pathways of movement. Because, uh, you know, you'll watch people doing bicep curls in the gym and they're fling the weight around thinking they're fantastic, but they're actually not doing the work. And it would be exactly the same with, contracting the calf. If somebody's got an incompetent medial column and they're trying to do calf raises, they're probably not really doing the job properly. Posterior tibial dysfunction, something Fred sees when it's disastrous and it's gone really bad and that's not little surgery to fix that. You know, post tib is not firing properly, the calf can't fire properly. It's literally impossibility. Physically, you know, it cannot happen. So sometimes we have to pull people out of exercise that, that they're happy doing and say, Let's send you into a physio or a biokineticist and teach you how to do the exercise properly, get the movement pattern correct, and then the rehabilitation will be a lot easier. So that's you know, something that I see is that we have to sometimes get people to crawl again before they can walk, before they can run. So like a calf rehabilitation team. <laughs> yeah, completely. But working on, on that is actually education of everyone in those gym settings. Unfortunately, you've got your personal trainers that, and that's where we sit as physios with a problem. You know, personal training session costs 50 rand, your physio appointments 400. Um, 
and they, they're not wanting to do that referral purely because they haven't been educated. And that's something that I'm working quite closely with with local gyms in the area is recognizing of an, an issue and trying to get it referred to be seen a lot earlier. But it all comes down to education and again, actually acceptance of what we're trying to get out there. I think it's fundamental what uh, you have uh, put on today, Laura, of different specialties I mentioned multiple times, because uh, we are used to say venous and lymphatic disease and then in general ed edema is like flipping a coin. Whatever kind of health professional you are, you have one out of two chance of having to deal with a patient who has some issue with the venous and lymphatic dis uh, disorder. And in reality, whoever is managing joints and muscles is actually managing the pumps that are making the edema and the venous and lymphatic disorder uh, manage at, uh, at best. And this should be particularly um, presented to the public after the difficulty of the pandemic. That is an opportunity to remember that in reality, a significant part of the population is uh, in permanent lockdown, meaning that uh, rurality is uh, a very common condition for uh, the public. So the management of edema at home and teaching how to manage edema by proper exercise, proper physical activity, even at home, is something that will remain after the difficulty of the pandemic. Just because, again, the lockdown hopefully will be over soon, but uh, the rurality will remain. So teaching the patients uh, and the public how to manage at best a condition that is present in one out of two is fundamental and requires multi-specialty approach like today. Yeah, you're completely right. It's, yeah. Fred, we need a clever author group as well here. <laughs> well, you can start one whenever you want. You know you are part of the thing. No, but uh, okay. in, in Dubai, we will have a session dedicated to this. And indeed, uh, whoever wants to join uh, in February, uh, we are really looking forward for the collaboration with uh, orthopedics and rehab. We have always been working a lot about that. I don't know how, how right we are. We do some sort of Fukuda modified test in the office to see if the patient has some sort of weight-bearing uh, issue uh, because uh, all the patients who are coming in our office then go uh, to the experts of posture and uh, rehab to make sure that if we are fixing a pipe into the wall of the house, the wall of the house stand up still rather than bending. Mm, not true, thanks. And I think... Um... I mean, the, the other thing about patient education is also educating each other. And Sean was part of a group we had called Limb for Life, and it was multidisciplinary again, but just in you know an educational group because we often have gone so far into each of our own specialties that we don't know what everyone's doing or you know what's updated where, what happens to the patient. So it's probably education of us and the patients, yeah. Okay, I think I must um, start rounding up. Are there any further comments anyone wants to say before I close off? No, I, I was, yeah, I was just mentioning to, if this goes out to the public, to always rely on the scientific societies and the expert for which we, for example, created a, a web page where the patients and uh, the experts can write and report eventually encountered misinformation. So to always rely on, on the experts and uh, in this case to your scientific group in South Africa, rather than just surfing dangerously on the web. Yeah, thank you. So no Dr. Google. <laughs> um, and I think yeah, a few key elements is that we actually should be managing patients with edema pre and post operatively. We definitely need a multidisciplinary approach. 
and um, we need to further educate our patients. So thank you for joining. Thank you so much and congratulations. Okay. Ciao. Bye. Bye. Bye.